Good morning. My name is Art Alice Creed. Welcome to Grace. Um, our text this morning is Mark chapter 2. For the past five weeks, we've been in the King and I series, looking at the relationship of us to our King, of how powerful and beautiful our King is, of His authority to forgive and to heal. This church is really all about discipleship. Um, a disciple is someone who's following after Jesus, learning from Jesus, loving Jesus, living like Jesus. So as we gather this morning, <clears throat> we also gather together in communities. Um, and our communities have been doing, King and I, many of them together. We're going to begin a new series next week called The King and the Cross. We've got a brand new curriculum for that as well. Uh, ramping up to Easter on April the 16th. Can you believe that Easter is April the 16th? Looking at our King's identity and His work. So if you're not part of a group, we'd like you to engage with a group, a community group, a real-life discipleship group, and get connected. I'd like to start this sermon where we finished last week talking about something Jesus said to us about discipleship. Jesus said, if you follow me, I'm going to make you change your heart to become a fisher of men. Now, I believe that God is always at work in us, right? The Spirit is always at work. The Spirit of God is here this morning, convicting us of sin and righteousness and judgment. But Jesus said, you know, I'm going to send you out to become fishers of men. So let's think about that for a little bit, about what it means to fish, all right? So we had a little acronym as we started this morning on fishing. The F for fish stands for friendship or pursuing friendship or being friendly. In the story I'm about to tell you, <clears throat> there is a profound friendship. Now, friends are people we invite into our lives, we do life with. Friends are people we feel comfortable with. We know from the sto story, we don't know from the story how long it takes, it took for these friends to become friends, whether they met in their neighborhood, whether they met at school, whether they met at work, but somehow the friendship has formed. We don't know whether their friendship hit a tough patch, but friendships normally do hit a tough patch. We don't know <clears throat> much about these friends, but we know they spent time with each other. We know that good friends are always looking out for one another, right? When you have a good friend, the person's always looking out for you. They challenge us to take it to the next level, you know? Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. But one thing that's true about friends is they carry us. They carry us when life has become overwhelming. And in this story this morning, a man's life has become pretty overwhelming. Somebody said that a true friend walks into your life when others walk out. Therefore, you never can lose a true friend. Now, in this story, there's four friends, and so I've given them some names, kind of personalized it. I'm going to call one Loving Larry, one Hopeful Harry, one Courageous Charlie, and one Strong Stephen. Or, if you like, one Loving Laura, one Hopeful Hannah, one Courageous Charity, or one Strong Sarah. So fish, fishing, right? Fish, the F is for being friendly and developing friendships. In the story, we're going to have four friends who are pretty tight with one another. Secondly, the word initiate. In fishing, there's always 
the taking of initiative. And the story I'm about to tell you, uh, somebody has to initiate. To initiate is to cause something to happen. Nothing happens unless somebody initiates. Now, these four friends are about to initiate an action. They've heard or seen Jesus heal. You know, one of the parts of Mark chapter 1 is that people lined up at the door of Peter's house and received healing. It's very likely that one of these or all of these men had been healed by Jesus. Now, these friends have a friend who is paralyzed. Paralysis was considered incurable in the ancient world. So their friend lies on a straw bed, you know, paralyzed all day long in misery and poverty. I imagine that one of these four has this bright idea, you know, he's the catalyst. He says to his three friends, you know, what if we took our friend to Jesus? So loving Larry says, I love my paralyzed friend. And hopeful Harry says, if we carry him to Jesus, there is hope. And courageous Charlie says, you know, we can do this. We can definitely do this. And strong Stephen says, I'll carry one corner of the bed. You guys, you three carry another corner. A plan is hatched in their minds. They initiate a plan to carry their paralyzed friend to Jesus. And they sell this plan to their friend. And they begin to hike through the streets of Capernaum. Now, I've been to this town of Capernaum, and it's not level flat. Like, it's not like walking at Baker Park. There's like major hills and valleys in Capernaum. You see, what's happening here is they're forming a team. Everything that happens that's productive happens in teams, right? In our church here, we have a worship team. What you just saw was a team of people working together. We have a children's team, you know, designed to disciple our children, to encourage our parents. We have a student leadership team, right, empowering this generation to be following after Jesus. We have a discipleship team where we work on things like curriculum and working with our coaches and leaders. So there's team. But when it comes to evangelism, what happens is we kind of send you out on your own, right? It's kind of individual. But can you imagine what would happen as a church if we began to collaborate, cooperate with one another in team in carrying people to Jesus? So I stands for initiate. And then there's S, which stands for stories. Now what happens in friendship, and you can tell when someone's really becoming your friend is, they begin to tell you their story, right? And you begin to unveil your story to them. Now, I suppose that one of these friends, let's call him Strong Stephen, began to tell his story to the paralyzed man. He could say, you know, I always wasn't strong. I had a weakness, a huge weakness to alcohol. I believed I could handle it, but it handled me. My drinking was completely out of control. I could not control it. It had control over me. But I came to the house, I came to Jesus, and I said, Jesus, would you help me? And he delivered me. And the very same Jesus who delivered me has the power to deliver you. Never underestimate the power of your story, of your testimony. For these four friends, in order to be in the life of this man, had to know 
his story, that he now was paralyzed. Some people we know are born with cerebral palsy. From birth, from in utero, they are paralyzed. Some people develop muscular dystrophy and progressively lose the use of their bodies. Some people have accidents like John Erickson Tata, like um, Christopher Reeve, and become paralyzed. And all of them have stories, just like every person in this room has a story. And then as a person shares their story, what motivates these four friends is hope. They are convinced that if they can get their friend to Jesus, there is hope. Because Jesus has the power to heal. You see, nothing is impossible with God. All things are possible with God. We said last week that sometimes God heals instantaneously. I have been in those places where God has done a miracle work and healed somebody instantaneously. Sometimes God heals progressively over time. But always God heals ultimately. And if he heals you instantaneously, you definitely want to praise him because that's the hand of God. And if that healing is progressive in your life, you want to trust him, right? Or wait upon him because God is at work. Sometimes God heals with surgeons and doctors and medicines. Sometimes God heals with chiropractors and physical therapy. Sometimes God heals with warmer weather or sunlight. Sometimes God heals with better diet or exercise or stretching. But God's name is Jehovah Rapha. I am the God who heals you. Our God is a healer. Now, I know that some of you here are frustrated because God hasn't healed on your timeline. I understand your frustration. But we cannot demand or dictate to God because He is our Father and He always knows what's best for us. And He's always at work. We simply have to trust Him and believe. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. A few days later, it says, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. When Jesus entered this town, the word spread very quickly about him. People heard that Jesus had come home. I mean, most likely he was living in Peter's house, and he was riding on this huge wave of popularity. People wanted to be around this miracle worker, Jesus. So it says in verse 2 that so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, as he preached the word to them. Why did the people gather in this house? Jesus Christ was preaching the gospel to them. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom. Jesus was in the house, and the house was packed out. It was standing room only. There was no room left, not even outside the door. You could say the atmosphere was electric. You could tell that something was about to happen in this house. Luke, when he tells the story, says the power of the Lord was present to do healing. And so now Jesus is there, and they've gathered to hear the Word of God. Verse number 3. And some men came, bringing to him a paralytic, 
carried by four of them. Four of them were carrying this paralyzed man to Jesus. Were the four his family? Well, they could have been his family relatives. Were the four his friends? We don't know. They could have been his friends. But this paralyzed man is lying on a pallet. He couldn't dress himself. He couldn't bathe himself. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't even go to the bathroom. They know his story and they know his disability. And they decide to take action. They said to the paralyzed man, we're taking you to Jesus. <laughs> so each of them takes a corner of the bed and hoists him up and they carry him through the streets of, of Capernaum and they bring him to Peter's house. <laughs> now they expected when they got there that there would be people at the house. Of course, people have gathered to hear Jesus. But they didn't expect this many people at the house because it's standing room only at Peter's house. They couldn't get into Jesus because of the crowd. The thicket of the people surrounding the house provided a roadblock to get the paralyzed man to Jesus. So I need to explain to you a little bit about the houses then. The houses then were very simple. The walls were only about six feet tall. And what happened would be they'd lay timbers across those walls for a very simple roof. And then they would sort of uh, overlay them with branches or thorns, and then they would take about a foot of mud and lay it on those wood pieces, and on top of that there would be a tile. The tile would be on the very top of the roof. So these four men cared about the well-being of their friend. They showed their compassion by carrying them, him to Jesus. They didn't have access to Jesus in the room. They came up with a pretty creative strategy, wouldn't you say? They began digging through Peter's roof. Like children, you know, digging in the sand. So these guys began digging at this guy's roof. Through the mud, through the timbers, taking off the tiles, opening it up, and lowering their friend down to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, <laughs> he said to the man, Son, your sins are forgiven. When they dropped him through the roof, <laughs> Jesus looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. The four men have brought this man to Jesus not to have his sins forgiven, but they brought him to get him healed. I mean, wouldn't you be surprised if you went to the doctor and the doctor examined you and then said, son, your sins are forgiven. We expect a doctor to kind of look us over, you know, give us some medicine, perhaps a prescription, a, a treatment that somehow this will take care of us. Again, the body will function normally again after this prescription. But the gospel declares that there is both an inner healing and also the healing of the body. You are mind, body, and spirit, right? You have parts to you that are unseen. And Jesus understands that the greatest need 
in this man's life is to be forgiven? Could it be in his condition of suffering those many days, he wondered, what would I say if I ever got into the presence of God? He had many regrets over his past, of what he had done, what he'd said. And now Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Son is a word of relationship. It's a word of affection. And Jesus looks at this poor man and says, son. And then he says, your sins are forgiven. God's ways are not our ways. His purpose is not our purpose. Jesus knows exactly what he needs. What he needs is to be forgiven. All that time lying on his back, he's had a lot of time to reflect and deal with his regrets. And he realizes that he has transgressions. He has broken the moral will of God. He realizes that he has sin. He's fallen short of the glory of God. He realizes that he has iniquity, sin passed down from generation to generation. He's sort of the last of the dominoes that's now fallen. And Jesus looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Wouldn't you love to hear that? Son, your sins are released. Something beautiful is happening here. A sinner who has sinned is being forgiven. His slate is being wiped clean. He's been paralyzed, but now God is showing him grace, just like God wants to show you grace. But out of this encounter with Jesus, now a controversy develops because in the room are the teachers of the law, verse 6. The teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Be careful what you think because Jesus knew what they were thinking before they said it. And he called them out. You see, their logic is impeccable. They, they knew that Jesus was forgiving this man, this sinner, and only God can forgive sins. So there's, it's an assertion that Jesus is God, that God is forgiving this man's sin. They were right that this man had sinned against God, and only God can forgive. You know, if there's three people, and my, I go by the first name of R, but imagine Q, R, and S are friends, right? And Q and S aren't getting along very well. So what happens is um, S is talking trash to Q, and Q decides to punch him in the mouth and then shove him down in the dirt and kick him on the dirt. And I come along and I say, being R, I say to Q, Q, your sins are forgiven. Now, do I have the power to forgive Q's sins? You're not following this illustration. <laughs> if I'm not the one being sinned against, I don't have the power to forgive him, you see. The only one who can forgive him is the one he has sinned against, provided he has the power to forgive. 
What's happening here is this man has sinned against God, and God now is asserting his authority to forgive. Does Jesus Christ have the authority to forgive your sins? Scripture declares that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus Christ is God. His authority began in heaven, and then in the incarnation when He became one of us. His authority became evident by living a sinless life that Jesus could say, can any of you bring, prove to me guilty of sin? And nobody could. And His authority then is ultimately resolved in the atonement when God made Him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ here is extending grace to a man. And then Jesus asks this very profound question. He says in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or get up and take your mat and walk? Which is easier? What do you think is easier to do, to say? Well, it's easier to say, you're right, your sins are forgiven, right? Because who can validate the claim? You can say that all day long, your sins are forgiven, but if you haven't been authorized to make that statement, it's an empty statement, right? I mean, people make empty statements all the time, false promises. So Jesus says, which is easier? Now, the atonement is going to cost some blood on Jesus' part. He's going to lay down his life. So the atonement isn't easy. But which is easier? It's easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Then get up, take your mat, and walk. So what Jesus does is to say, to prove to you that I have the power to forgive sins, get up, take up your mat, and walk. And guess what? The man got up from his mat. He carried his mat with him. And he walked. And Jesus said, and go home to your family. Get up, take your mat, and go home. That means that the first testimony he would bring was to his own family of his changed life. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. It was quite a scene. So let me walk with you through what I believe are some things to hold on to from this story. The first is that friends carry their friends somewhere. Your friends have carried you somewhere in life, but real friends carry their friends to Jesus. Real friends are always carrying their friends in prayer to Jesus. Notice how these four guys love their friend. They weren't put off by the big crowd. They dug through a roof. They ignored the judgments of the Pharisees. They were willing to make a sacrifice. You see, they had experienced the love and care of God. And now it was God showing them love to their friend. You know, God so loved the world that he made the ultimate sacrifice for us. He dug through the roof of this world and lowered His Son, Jesus, down to us that we might be made well. Doug Nichols was a missionary to India, and he was learning the, one of the languages there in India, 
and he contracted tuberculosis. They put him in a sanitarium, and a sanitarium is where the people with TB went back then to get better. And he had with him a, a lot of Christian literature. He wanted to give it to the nurses and doctors and patients, but they really weren't interested. They kind of politely refused. And the people, by the way, weren't very happy with Doug being in this sanitarium since he was an American, a so-called rich American, and it was a government-free sanitarium. They didn't know that Doug was as broke as they are. And most nights, Doug would wake up in the middle of the night coughing. He would cough through the days. And one night, he saw this sicker patient on the edge of his bed. Then in his weakness, he fell back into his bed. And he heard him crying very softly. And then he had soiled himself. The next morning when uh, Doug woke up, other patients were yelling at this older man. And nurses chided him for making a mess. And one nurse slapped him on the face. And the old man just curled up in a ball. Well, the Spirit of God was working in Doug, and he knew his assignment. Because the next night when he was coughing, he saw that older man trying to get out of bed, and he went over to him. And when he touched him on his shoulder, the man was full of fear. Doug smiled at him and put his arm under him and lifted him up and carried him to the bathroom. And he stood behind him just supporting his arms. And when he finished, he carried him back to his bed. And when he laid him down, the old man kissed him on the forehead and said something in Hindi he couldn't understand. The next morning when he woke up, one of the fellow patients handed him a cup of steaming hot tea and said he wanted to know about Jesus. A nurse came by his bed and said, could you pass me some of that literature? I need to find out about this Jesus. One of the doctors came by later in the day and said, can you tell me about Jesus? Soon Doug had given out all of his literature and shared the gospel, and he knew that his assignment would be that whenever this older man could not carry himself, to simply carry him to the bathroom and support him because he was carrying him to Jesus. You see, friends will carry their friends somewhere, but a real friend will carry you to Jesus. Secondly, friends are carrying their friends are going to run into obstacles, but real friends won't give up. See, when Jesus saw their faith, he saw the faith these four men had. Question is, do I have that kind of faith? I thought about some character qualities of these men. First off, they were caring we aren't told how they knew about the paralytic. They just cared about his condition. Do I care about this generation? Do I care about the immigrants that are moving here to our city? Do I care about the soldiers, the vets who have served our nation? Do I really care about the unwed mom? Ask God to give you a heart for people. Because these four guys care deeply about the condition of their friend. 
Secondly, they were courageous. Some say that what they did was pretty silly. I say what they did was pretty courageous. It takes courage for four guys to bring their friend to Jesus. You see, faith will always mean taking risks. And there's a time to be silent and a time to speak up. But God may be calling you to be bold and courageous within your own family. To be courageous at the school you attend, in your neighborhood. Courageous in your workplace beside somebody far from him. You say it takes courage to testify about Jesus. Thirdly, they were creative. Once they got to this house, <laughs> the way was pretty crowded, you know, to get to their friend. They decided to think outside the box and dig through the roof, you know, disrupt the meeting. Can you imagine if this was happening here? Like the roof is opening up and there's like debris falling on our heads. I mean, this upset the Pharisees. When you begin to fish, you see, and reaching out to somebody, you're going to begin this friendship. And you'll find that people will begin leaning into you, wanting to hang, hang out with you. Well, the question you want to ask is, what's next? Father, Spirit, how do you want to move next? Would you like to go with me to a movie? I've seen something I really like. Would you like to listen to a song that I've been listening to? Would you like to read a book I've been reading? See, what's happening is you're now thinking beyond yourself. You're thinking outside the box. You're thinking about the need of this person you're talking to, right? They're lost, far from God, and you're thinking, what can I do to move them in God's direction? There's a place where I go to get my hair cut. And Debbie always complains because I get my hair cut so short. This is four weeks in. <laughs> so I was there getting my hair cut last time. And the person who's the wife of the owner, the guy cutting my hair, says to me, and this is now three or four years down the line, can you help me know about Jesus? And I said, yes. So about 20 minutes, we talked about Jesus. She says, is there anything you have for me to read about Jesus? She's tracking down her biological father. She's in a spiritual crisis. She's getting to know our heavenly father. And I brought her a book, and she devoured the book. And when I brought the book over, she just gave me the biggest hug. She said, thank you for telling me about Jesus. He is changing my life. Amen. you got to think outside the box. Who's outside the kingdom? And what creative method is God going to employ to bring this person into the kingdom? Nathan, he was speaking last night, he was talking about being in Canada. And there was this guy that, you know, loved to play basketball. So he would play basketball with the guys, you know, and kind of get bruised up and play basketball. And uh, they found out he loved percussion. He loved, you know, drums. So they invited him to be part of the worship team. And he got involved with the worship team, made some friendships there. Then he stepped into community, got into a small group, you know, started digging into the Word. And he started attending then worship services. And what happened was, over the course of time, the process, this person became a follower of Jesus. Now, I've got a question. Who led this guy to the Lord? 
Was it the evangelist who preached the gospel? Was it the pastor doing the sermons? Was it the group that he came part of? Was it the worship team that he enjoyed? Was it the guys playing basketball? The answer is all of them. You see, this is thinking creatively, collaboratively, of how we can work together to bring people to Jesus. That's the end game, to bring them to Jesus. And fourth, they were committed. They stayed with the man even when there were roadblocks. There will always be obstacles. They could have said it's too difficult to carry this man through the streets. They could have gone home when they saw the crowds. But because they were committed, they persevered. They found some stairs. They took him to the roof. They, <laughs> they dug through the roof. They lowered him down to Jesus. Don't ever give up on somebody. Say, we will do whatever it takes to bring this man, this woman, this child to Jesus. Fifth, there was conviction. They had a conviction that Jesus could do something for their friend that they could not do. You see, nothing is too hard for the Lord. If they didn't bring their friend, there would be no hope for him. And this moved them to deep action and deep conviction, which brings me to six, cooperation. There was no way that one guy could carry the paralytic by himself. It would take four of them carrying him through the streets. They had to be of the same mind and go in the same direction. They had to go at the same speed, and they had to coordinate their efforts to lower him down together to Jesus. If I could speak out of the paralyzed guys, just say, don't drop me. <laughs> they had to lower him down slowly, which brings the seven, which was a very costly process. It will cost you something to bring somebody to Jesus. It will cost you your time and your energy and most likely your money. You ever thought about the roof? You ever thought about Peter being in his house with his roof being destroyed, being opened up, you know, like things are going to leak, right? Somebody had to fix the roof. When you do a creative miracle like this one, you know, like bringing him down, someone's got to fix that roof. It's going to cost somebody money to fix that guy's roof. But perhaps the most telling part of the story is celebration. Can you imagine the joy in these four guys, you know, looking down through the hole in the roof, their friend getting healed by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus, high-fiving one another? I mean, life is good, right? This guy is now in the kingdom. There was huge celebration. So, Real friends will carry their friends to Jesus. There's always going to be obstacles. And thirdly, Jesus heals and Jesus forgives. He does what is impossible for man to do. He heals the man physically to prove he has the authority to forgive. So I want to take a look at Mark chapter 2, verse 5. And just live in this verse for a moment as we wrap things up because I think God wants to speak to us from this verse. It says that when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, your, son, your sins are forgiven. We would think that 
forgiveness is sort of secondary. The real problem is I'm paralyzed. But the man had become paralyzed by his, by his physical condition just as we get paralyzed by our problems. The greatest need in this man's life, the greatest need in your life, is to be forgiven, to be cleansed of your sins, to have your sins washed away, to have your debt forgiven, to be released. Why? Because paralysis is only a lifetime condition, but forgiveness is eternal. You may have wounds in your soul. You may have a father wound or a mother wound. You may have a brother wound or a sister wound. You may have an army wound or a marriage wound or a childhood wound. But can you imagine those words being spoken over you? Son, my daughter, your sins are completely forgiven. Forgiveness is perhaps the greatest thing that ever can be spoken over us. You are forgiven. What has wounded you doesn't have to hold you because it's time to get free. Forgiveness doesn't mean it didn't happen. Oh, it happened. Something happened. I said something. I did something. I regret Forgiveness doesn't mean that you forget even what happened. I've heard preachers say stuff like, you know, when you forgive, you're going to forget. I don't think so. There's a word for that I don't want to use. I just don't think that's true. But when you let go of what wounded you, you get free. You get a chance to move on, to step forward. I know a guy whose dad walked out on him, and his mom set an impossible standard for him. Now he has an eating disorder. He said, I could blame my dad forever for what my dad did, or I could choose to forgive. You see, each one of you has a chance to either hold on to the grudge and the bitterness of what happened to you, or believe that what Jesus did on the cross was sufficient that you do not have to punish yourself anymore or punish the person who hurts you. But the hardest person to forgive is not your mom or dad, it's not your ex, it's not your neighbor. Guess who the hardest person to forgive is? It is yourself. It is your self-inflicted wounds. It happened, I fell short, I ruined the relationship, I saw stuff I shouldn't have seen, I did stuff I shouldn't have done. It happened, and I hurt myself. Johnny Cash wrote a song about that. I hurt myself today. Forgiveness is God's grace to you, and it begins with confession. It means coming in the presence of God and being honest with Him and letting your soul receive the grace of God. And once you've received this grace, it's extending that grace to somebody else. Because great is the love that God has shown to you. And if that love is inside your heart, that love can be extended beyond yourself to someone who's hurt you. If God has forgiven you the magnitude of our own sins, then we can extend that forgiveness to somebody else. And God may be calling this morning to extend that forgiveness to somebody who hurts you. 
who wounded you. And the wound is very deep. And here's a lie. The lie is, when this person finally owns up to their sin, when they finally come, you know, understanding how deeply I've been hurt, and now the confession of their sin matches how deeply I've been hurt, then I can forgive them. I just want to say to you, you might be waiting a long time for that to happen. I hope it happens for you, but just in case it doesn't, why don't you try this one? Why don't you forgive from the heart the person who's offended you and let it go? Just release it. Don't hold on to it any longer. Get rid of the bitterness and the grudge and the resentment and just let it go. Let it go. Don't hold on to it. Let it go. Pray with me, would you please? So here we are, God, in a tender moment. We see the man being lowered through the roof, and that man is us, paralyzed, held captive, prisoner. And Jesus, you came to set the captives free. You came to set us free. You came to bestow the greatest gift to us, forgiveness, that we could be completely, fully forgiven. Our past could be wiped out. Our big sins, our little sins, our medium-sized sins washed away like the sea, washes away the beach and makes it smooth again. But Father, we have to have faith to believe that Jesus has the authority to forgive our sins. So I proclaim in Jesus' name, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that you came to give us. We open our hands, God, to receive it, to take it in. And then we extend our hands, Father, to release it. The person you bring into our mind, we're asking God for the grace to forgive them as we have been forgiven. To you to heal that massive wound and hurt in our soul. Because, God, you do internal healing inside of us, as well as physical healing to our bodies. And there could be a connection. So, God, would you please, 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 please hear the prayer we pray this morning. That, Lord Jesus, do a deep work in us. And help us, Lord, not to hold on any longer to that offense. We release it in Jesus' name. We pray. In Jesus' name.